Father, we do come to you and we ask for your Spirit's help in understanding this long and knotty and difficult passage. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a college student on a summer mission trip, I was assigned to attend a worship service at a very large local church on the 4th of July. As a Presbyterian kid, I was out of my typical element because the service was designed to celebrate our particular nation and its history. During the service, the American flag was unfurled over the cross. Streamers were shot across the sanctuary. We said the Pledge of Allegiance, and then to close it all off, fireworks were fired inside the sanctuary. It was quite the spectacle, and I remember sitting there along with my frozen chosen brothers who had also grown up in Presbyterian context, and we were just in apoplectic shock. What's happening? Fortunately, we don't have to shoot fireworks today to make things sizzle. We have it all right here in 1 Corinthians 7. It's the sermon nobody wants to hear and everybody wants to listen to online, so I know how this works. When the pastor has to turn to talk about marriage and sex and such things, everybody gets extremely uncomfortable. And in 1 Corinthians 7, what we have is the Apostle Paul turning to some very practical matters that were plaguing and distressing the church in Corinth. We know that they had written to him a letter, and Paul in chapter 7 turns to actually address the concerns of their letter. Look what he writes in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they had written to him, and then Paul delays for six chapters, but finally when he gets to chapter 7, he takes up their concerns. Why is that? There is something very significant to note here. Because the Corinthian congregation, they had an agenda for the Apostle Paul. They had lots of problems we've already seen, and we're not even halfway through the letter. And they had certain questions for him. But Paul doesn't go straight to their cultural questions. It's interesting that for the first six chapters, Paul sets how he is going to answer their questions. That rather than diving into the practical matters, Paul lays the foundation for what it means for Christ to be crucified, for Christ to be the wisdom of God, for Christ to be our righteousness, for Christ to be our redemption, for Christ to be our sanctification. And that Paul is setting out his method, that what he's going to do and how he's going to answer these questions is from a theological reasoning that's rooted in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And then he's going to begin answering the Corinthians in all of their culturally compromised and gospel syncretism that has happened inside of the church. And so if we fail to do this, and if we fail to reason the way that the Apostle Paul does, one of two things will happen to us. The first is that we'll become a moralistic church. That is, that we'll divorce beliefs in God from behaviors and we'll become focused about behaviors. This is the mistake of fundamentalism. And this is what happens when we don't keep the living God and what he has done with Jesus Christ at the center of who we are, then directing our lives. The second thing that can happen is we become culturally accommodated as a church. And that allows the surrounding world to set the agenda. And this is what was happening in Corinth, as they were culturally accommodated, and the questions of their culture were directing them and guiding them, and they were answering the questions in the same way that the culture was. 
And Paul has to undo that. He has to work against it. He refuses those paths, and so he confronts, he contradicts, and he corrects the Corinthians because they were held captive by their Greco-Roman culture. Though converted, they were very compromised. And so Paul, after laying that foundation, will then turn and begin to work on these practical matters. Because these practical matters are not unimportant. They have tremendous consequence. But for the Christian, it all flows from our beliefs about Jesus and who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Because what happened in Corinth is that with their deformed and deficient version of Christianity, they had distorted everything. Their deformed and deficient Christianity had distorted their doctrine of God and of the creation, as we've seen. It also distorted basic things like marriage, sex, money, and worship. They were all upside down. And so Paul's going to address it frankly. I promise to be modest in my speech about things that are fairly delicate today. My children are in the room as yours are. And so I will respect that. But also, it is a great moment for us to reflect that the gospel doesn't leave anything untouched in our lives. There's no one private quarter that you get to hide and reserve to yourself. Paul is going to drive into the most intimate things about your life and say that there's a way to serve God in those things. And so we do have a gnarly 40 verses to address this morning, and certainly I won't be able to round off every corner. Feel free to send me questions. There are some difficult things in the passage. But we're going to look at this under four general principles this morning, uh, if you'll allow that to work as we address uh, this large passage. But this first principle that we're going to look at is that we affirm those who are called to be single. That this is where the apostle begins. He wants to affirm those who are called to be single. And he recognizes that in the church of Corinth and the church today, that there are really uh, two types of single people. There are those who are single by choice, and there are those who are single by providence. That some have determined, you find this in verse 7 and also verse 38 and 39, some have determined to devote themselves to singleness that they would pursue that calling and life. And then others are afflicted with singleness because of loss. That Some have spouses who die. And so you find this in verse 8, where he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, that would best be translated to the widowers and the widows, those who have suffered loss. And then as you get down in verses 12 through 16, you find that there are divorces in the congregation. Some have unbelieving spouses who have left them, and so they've been abandoned. And so you have singles who are coming from various directions, and Paul's point, the impetus of what he's saying is that whatever the case about your singleness and how you got there, that there's no stigma attached to you. There's no second-class citizenship in the church, that you're a brother and sister in the Lord. Now, this is despite what Facebook and sometimes traditional church culture will tell you, but that you're not second-class. Your relational status does not define who you are. People do not somehow become complete by virtue of marriage. They don't become more righteous. They don't get more justified. They don't get more sanctified because they are in a relationship with another human being. 
They don't begin to count at that point. That's not the way Paul approaches the whole matter. He doesn't view singleness as a curse or a plague, which sometimes our church cultures can. Rather, Paul chooses to see singleness as a gracious gift. Follow with me in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He's recognizing there that marriage also is a gift, but he says and identifies that singleness also is a gift from God. He's received that. And then in verse 17, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And that that is what it means to live in light of the gift of God, what God has assigned to us, receiving it from Him. Even when there are difficult moments and hard moments, but the Apostle Paul, who was most likely widowed himself, had learned to translate his own loss and his own sufferings in life, and he had taken that and learned to understand it in a positive way of what he can now do for the Lord. He says that there's benefit to being single. If you turn over to verses 32 through 35, this is where he enumerates it. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He says, I want you to recognize that those who are married bear certain burdens in this life and that you can be free from those as a Christian and serve with a good conscience. This is all he wants to say. He recognizes that there are some circumstances in the Corinthian church. We've seen the sexual dysfunctionality. And so he says, because of the present distress, it may be good for you to consider not being married. We don't know everything about that. But what we do know is that Paul is highlighting that singleness is an acceptable vocation. That there's no stigma attached to you that you don't wear the scarlet letter S and it's not emblazoned on you and now we're all waiting for you to get married to matter. That's not how Paul approaches it. He gives incredible dignity and says there's an opportunity to serve the Lord. John Stott was the pastor of All Souls Church in England. He died just a few years ago at the age of 94. Stott is well-known. Many of you probably own commentaries and books that he wrote. He ministered at All Souls for uh, the majority of most of his entire career. What many people have forgotten is that John Stott was a lifelong bachelor. In 2011, just before he died, he did an interview about his singleness. It's profound. Listen to what he says. He says, in spite of rumors to the contrary, I have never taken a solemn vow or heroic decision to remain single. On the contrary, during my 20s and 30s, like most people, I was expecting to marry one day. In fact, during this period, I twice began to develop a relationship with a lady who I thought might be God's choice of life partner. But when the time came to make a decision, I can best explain it by saying that I lacked an assurance from God that he meant me to go forward. So I drew back. And when that had happened twice, I naturally began to believe that God meant me to remain single. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I think I know why. I could never have traveled or written as extensively as I have done it if I had had the responsibilities of a wife and family. It's a very balanced tremendously blessed interview in which you hear Stott talk about the great benefits of marriage and also the benefits of singleness. And friends, we need to have that kind of balance in the church. 
recognizing the incredible gift it can be and using it to that end and not having prejudiced views of people who don't share a married status. But the second thing that Paul goes into and the second principle we'll, we'll, we'll discuss is while we affirm singleness, we also encourage the institution of marriage. That the passage is full of Paul's affirmation of singleness, but it's also full of his affirmation of the institution of marriage. And that to honor marriage, we don't need to denigrate singleness. And to honor singleness, we don't need to de-emphasize marriage. That Paul allows both of these tracks and ways of living in the world to exist with one another without taking down either one of them. And the church sometimes struggles with this. But Paul is making it clear that marriage is God's good gift, that he extends it to us, that he welcomes us to step into it. If you follow first his address to widows and widowers in verses 8 and 9, he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You find this also in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And then you find in, verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 15, that Paul instructs those who have been abandoned that they are free to remarry, that they're not enslaved. And then later on in chapter 7, he is speaking to those who are betrothed or what we would now call engaged. And look what he says in verse 28. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. And then follow into verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. And then finally, in verse 38, he says, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And friends, this is where Paul is upholding, while also upholding singleness, he's upholding the married life and the institution of marriage. So he affirms singleness, but he affirms those who have the desire to marry, that singleness is not everyone's gift Remember what he says in verse 7 early on, each has his own gift. This is mine, and I encourage you to consider it. The one caveat on all of this is that inside the institution of marriage, Paul does drop this in at the end of verse 39, that marriage for the Christian is to be in the Lord. And this is the reference to what he will teach in other places about being equally yoked that the Christian is to join one who shares their faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. And so he recognizes that remarriage is possible for some and that they should marry in the Lord. And so this is what Paul is addressing as he affirms the institution of marriage. And as a pastor for about 15 years now, I can say that there are mostly about two problems when it comes to people approaching marriage, especially amongst younger generations. My first decade, I worked almost exclusively with young couples and adults and walked through many premarital uh, counseling sessions. And some young adults do have a tremendously low view of marriage. 
and many people have written about this and been concerned about it. And it's normally not understood what the, uh, the, the, the experience is that informs that low view of marriage. Normally, it is bad family experience or abusive relational histories that bring in a low view of marriage. And so there's room to be incredibly sympathetic when you get inside of it pastorally. But the thing is, is that in order to marginalize those painful experiences and what could be scary and frightful and seem out of control is the whole institution of marriage is dismissed and trashed. And Paul would hold out to us today that the institution of marriage is God's good gift and it is a way of serving the Lord and you are to use that relationship to serve God. Now, the second thing that you'll see amongst other young adults is that there's a romantic view of marriage. That is that typically people are looking at marriage without any type of realism. One of the wonderful things about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is he's very realistic and he bears the mark of a man who has been married because he knows that he is a burden to his wife at times, and he recognizes that she is a burden to him at times, that there are anxieties and worries that are created by a household living together because of sin and because of all the complications. And so he's very frank about it, that marriage is not going to complete you. It's not going to fix you. One of the most entertaining moments in all the premarital counseling sessions that I've uh, sat through is when young couples would say, well, we don't fight. And that was always fun. This happens probably about 45% of the time. Because then I'm just waiting to sit for a few weeks and press the button. Because you can normally begin to identify it. And of course, everybody wants to say, well, we don't fight. And say, like, well, you will. And the danger is not fighting. The danger is not fighting well. The danger is not knowing how to reconcile. And friends, as Paul holds out the dignity of the institution of marriage, he's also doing so realistically. It's important for us as a church and in our own culture to do so realistically, not with this Pollyanna view that everything has to be right and you have to stuff all your problems and it can never get messy. It gets incredibly messy. And that is okay as long as there is a gospel commitment to confrontation and healing, to forgiveness and restoration. That's what a Christian marriage is ultimately about. So it's God's gift, and inside of that gift, there are burdens to bear. The third principle that Paul develops here, though, is he also exhorts those who are married. He has some frank talk. If you turn back to the beginning of chapter 7, and many people are puzzled by what is said here, but you remember last week that we identified, or two weeks ago, we identified that when we see the quotations, this is where Paul is quoting from the letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. So he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That is what the Corinthians were saying. Now, you may be scratching your head and thinking, no, Last week, he was addressing in chapter 6 sexual immorality where people were going to prostitutes. This week, some people inside the congregation are saying, hey, it's good for me not to be sexually active with my wife. What is all of that? This is profoundly Greco-Roman culture. This is exactly what it is. 
Because in the ancient world, it was thought, if you really wanted to be holy, that oftentimes, even in Greco-Roman pagan religions, that their sexual abstinence was part of that holiness. Now, there was also sexual practices that were very lewd and active inside the temple itself for the regular people who came and worshipped. It's a very complex and dynamic issue that takes place uh, in ancient cultures. But what Paul has to address are those of an ascetic mentality who separate sexuality from spirituality. And by not being active sexually, they thought that they could be more spiritual. And Paul has to undo that because he doesn't believe that's the case. Paul doesn't view sex as something dirty and wrong and something that has to be hidden and not talked about. He'll be incredibly modest about it at the same time, but he's not a prude. That sex is the gift of God. So look what he says. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And friends, what he's recognizing here is that sex is a gift from God. We don't have to be prudish about it. We are to be modest. To be prudish is to reject sex as God's gift. To be modest is to receive it and to enjoy it as God's gift in an intimate context. And Paul is telling the husbands and wives of the Corinthian church, and he's instructing the husbands and wives today that we are to be sexually faithful to one another, and that means sexually active with one another, and all that it takes to cultivate that. Because any experience in marriage teaches that sexual activity is just a fruit of a healthy relationship. I'm not talking about sexual frequency necessary, where you have to put up notches on a board, but that a quality sex life over time is only sustained by a healthy relationship. And so when Paul is addressing this, he knows he's actually building the health of husbands and wives and households where men and women live together. It is an intimate and it is a private matter, and so it can be extremely uncomfortable for people. And despite the fact that sex is plastered all over our culture, we don't like to talk about it when it comes to that personal level. So it is a private matter, but what I want you to note, what Paul is highlighting here, is despite being private, it has massive communal implications. Look again at what he says in chapter 7. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is recognizing something here. He's not critiquing anything that sexual desire is God-given. And while that sexual desire has been corrupted by sin and its presence in the world, it's important for us to recognize that God gives a means for the expression of sexual desire and of sexual fulfillment inside of marriage. And he says that the husband, his body doesn't belong to himself. It belongs to his wife. And he says, the wife, her body doesn't belong to herself. It belongs to the husband. This in no way substantiates any type of abusive behavior in a sexual relationship. But rather, there's a mutual submission that takes place here. As one another give themselves unselfishly to each other. This is 
the Bible's vision of a Christian sexuality in which we give ourselves to one another freely. And so husband and wife are to enjoy intimacy together. But the implication of what he is saying is that when we fail to do so, when we're not faithful in our sexual relationship to one another, that we're actually failing to love our neighbor. And this is where, though very intimate and private, your sex life as a husband and wife is connected to the health of your community. Paul says it's dangerous for a spouse to be emotionally and physically unsatisfied and to be set loose in a community. And every church community has seen it. Because that person who's emotionally and physically unsatisfied will be prone to seek satisfaction for that. And it can be incredibly destructive. And Paul doesn't want to see the church afflicted with that, where covenants are broken and relationships are betrayed and everything is turned upside down and torn apart. And so ultimately, to withhold from your spouse to not do the work that it takes to be in a healthy relationship where sex is desired and cherished and prized, that is ultimately selfish behavior, is what Paul is saying. And so we want to love our neighbor. One of the other interesting pieces of conversations with young couples through the years of premarital counseling, and I have yet had one believe me when I said it, but I've told them while they're engaged, I set my standards for them as to what I believe Christian morality teaches, and I tell them that a disciplined sex life before you're married will yield a disciplined sex life after you're married. And they always ask me, what, what exactly do you mean by that? And I don't believe that. Sex will never be a problem for us. This is part of that romantic view of marriage. But what I explain is the same discipline it takes in order not to be sexually active prior to marriage, is the same discipline it takes to have a healthy marriage and an active sex life over the years and over the long haul. That just because you feel like that could never be the case with you, you also haven't had work stress, you haven't had children nagging at you, you haven't had major demands, you haven't had financial stress, and that is the environment in which an active and healthy sex life continues to flourish and grow. It happens inside of all the context of regular broken fallen life. And that's where husbands and wives are asked to nurture this relationship. It's inside of all of this regular context of life. And so please to the married, Love your neighbor by loving your spouse. If you find yourself in a place where sexual intimacy doesn't seem to be a priority and you're not interested, I would encourage you to explore that, to be willing to engage it, and to say, why is it not? Is it that we have something unreconciled between us? Is it that something happened that needs to be discussed? And most people fail to discuss those things because they're too shamed. They're too ashamed to bring it out into the light and to talk about it confidentially. Friends, it doesn't have to be with me, but there are many people who you can talk about that confidentially with. And isn't the health of your marriage, and isn't the love of your neighbor more important than the shame you may feel for bringing that up? You're not the only person to ever ask those questions. You're definitely not the first. And so do what you have to do. This is what Paul's saying in order to get in a healthy place where husbands and wives are living together faithfully. 
Final principle here that he's going to pursue is that we encourage marriages to remain whole. As Paul addresses this wide range of things going on in Corinth, he's also going to preserve the sanctity of marriage, that when that covenant has been entered, that we do everything possible for the marriage to remain whole. If you follow me in verses 10 and 11, he says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. This is the starting place for the discussion of Christian marriage and whether divorce is permissible. And Paul's first statement on this is that, no, you should not separate. And then he's going to come back and give the nuance. Because Paul does recognize that divorce in certain situations is permissible. It's not ideal. The ideal is for husband and wife to be reconciled. But Paul is a realist, he's a pastor, and he understands that that reconciliation is not always achievable. And there are two grounds that the Bible gives us for what we would consider to be biblical divorce. Those grounds are sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, and also abandonment. Matthew 19 handles sexual immorality, and here in chapter 7 in Corinthians, Paul deals with the issue of abandonment. Because there were some who were married to unbelieving husbands who were no longer then willing to be married to a believing wife. And there were some believing husbands who were married to unbelieving wives, and those unbelieving wives were no longer willing to be married to a believing husband, and they just simply abandoned them. And so the church has always recognized that abandonment is also a legitimate case for divorce. And while not the ideal, while reconciliation is what we hold out, that we also must be realistic. And then there are also situations which we recognize that people simply cannot work it out. They cannot work it out, and they have no biblical grounds for divorce, that there is no sexual unfaithfulness. There also is no abandonment. And then the question is, well, what do we do? And Paul recognized that some of these people in the Corinthian congregation had divorced. And so he then says that you're not free to remarry. And so packed into these verses, Paul is upholding the sanctity of marriage and instructing the church about how to move forward inside of a complicated and complex situation. It has all the complexities of the marriage environment and world that we live in today. And he gives us good and sound advice that marriage is to be upheld, that it is to be preserved, reconciliation is the goal, and that divorce sometimes is going to happen. And that divorce, uh, divorced people should not be prejudiced against, that there is such thing as biblical divorce. And that will sometimes happen in the congregation, and people who go through those situations should not also wear a scarlet letter upon their chest that they don't carry a stigma. That life happens, challenges happen, and the grace of God reigns over all of this. And so these are the principles that Paul's going to lay out here in speaking to a congregation about very naughty and difficult problems. It applies to us today as well. And though not necessarily fun and comfortable to listen to, we need it. We need direct talk, frank talk about real things. 
the nitty-gritty issues of life where we all live and where we all struggle and what we all encounter. And so, friends, take all of this. Live where you are called, is what Paul says. Enjoy the good gifts of God that he gives to you and ask him for grace that you can keep his commandments, that you can walk faithfully with him. Let's pray. Father, in all the difficulty that is wrapped up in this passage, we ask that you would give us grace to understand, that you lead us and guide us into that understanding. It's your Spirit who reveals all of your truth to us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as a community to know how to value one another, to know how to live together, to know what your limitations are, the good boundaries that you've assigned, and may we appreciate those and delight in them. Help us, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.